0: Welcome to An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So I'm not sure if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm still a little a little sick, a little under the weather. To be quite honest, it's uh, because I have COVID, I found out. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm I'm, pretty disappointed in the fact that I still was able to get COVID despite all the preventative measures I took. Uh, but I am glad that I was vaccinated because my my symptoms were pretty, pretty bad. And I have a feeling they would have been a hell of a lot worse had I not been vaccinated. Uh, this is not an attempt to sway anybody or... Join in what has now become an unnecessarily political conversation about the health of others. Uh, Do what you want. I fucking have stopped caring anymore what people do with themselves. Uh, This is just simple facts as I see them. I got the vaccine. I still ended up getting COVID. I'm still glad I got the vaccine. Probably still get the booster. However, you want to slice that pie. At the end of the day, it was the worst illness I've ever experienced in my entire life. I have had pneumonia twice, one which became bronchial pneumonia. And was hop- hospitalized for that. And while I don't have the cough that I had with bronchial pneumonia, uh, I do have recurring vertigo, which makes it really difficult for me to to stand up or even stay sitting for long. Uh, I had a uh, an extreme fever for for about three days. That was um, well, it was pretty fucking just dis- destructive mentally. Like the entire process has just been horrible. I did all the stuff you're supposed to, so you know I just toughed it out and. Took took what medicine I was had available. I didn't get anything prescribed. I just stuck with you know some over the counter stuff uh, for body aches. That that was something that really hit me hard too. I have a recurring back injury situation, uh, so it just the muscle fatigue and pain that that comes with this just directed itself right there, The small on my back. It is still a little hard to breathe, or at least hard to take deep breaths. I did not go to the hospital. I didn't want to fill up a bed, so I just sort of struggled with it. I almost reached the point of needing to go to the hospital, but I didn't quite meet meet that threshold that I had given myself based on the uh, the research I had done on when that might be necessary. I don't have a sense of taste or smell, which sucks, because that means my appetite is fucked. There's really no other way of describing that. I can eat fine. Uh, but I don't have any interest in food, you know, due to the fact that I can't smell or taste it. Uh, As soon as I had an idea that my symptoms were consistent with with COVID, I told my work and they, they put me off while I was supposed to work from home, but I haven't even been able to work much. I haven't been able to do much of anything except for just lay down. When the vertigo gets really bad, that's just really the only choice I have. I've spent some time laying on the floor to kind of relieve my back pain. I haven't had like any real energy mentally or otherwise to do much more than just take in images, I guess. Really, this is just horrible. That's all I can really explain it as. Like, this is just the fucking worst. And I'm not even saying any of that to like look for sympathy. It is what it is. I'll fucking make it through it. But when it's at its best reason why I'm even talking about this. I mean, one, because, yeah, it sucks I have COVID. It might reduce how soon I get this episode out. I'm not going to be able to record the whole thing in one go. I can already tell that I'm getting really fatigued just, just doing this little bit. My breathing's starting to get really labored just from talking this little bit. So I wanted to get a head start on this now. It's Monday the 18th. I'm, I'm hopefully well ahead of the curve in getting this done. I have to go to work Friday by Friday, so I'm hoping I feel better by Friday. Uh, anyways, um, so at best, when... You know, I've, I've woken up and I've taken some, uh, you know, I take a pre-workout kind of a drink as a starter because it's got vitamins and all the shit that I need in there. Plus my fact, my caffeine, my last real vice. And, uh, once I have that and I have that in my system, I'm able to move around a little bit. I feel hungover. That's like the best feeling I have is a feeling of a hangover with how, the rest of me usually feels, and that sucks. Like it, it's great as a reminder. Like I never want to feel like I have. I never want to have a hangover again. Uh, but that's like you know the weird dizziness, the kind of sleepiness behind the eyes, the just the upset stomach, but hungry, the not not really able to taste the food I'm eating, the just the the grogginess, the lack of focus, and not no energy to really you know mentally or otherwise to do anything. It feels it feels like a really bad hangover. You know, I'm a I'm a big uh, video game player. I can't sit and I can't even turn on a video game. I have no no capacity for it. Like, it just does not seem interesting. I just want to lay there like a vegetable and fucking watch stuff. And even then, like I end up turning it off and looking at the at the you know the wall or whatever. Yeah, it feels like a giant hangover. And it just you know it just brings full circle again that I used to sign up for this shit. I I used to sign up for this. I used to work on this. This was part of my my weekend work or even my weekday work when it was getting bad. You know, I'd start off Friday with the knowledge that Sunday I would have a terrible hangover from what I'm about to do for the whole weekend. And my God, the fact that I willfully put myself through this kind of a feeling on a regular basis is just fucking mind boggling. I am like, I, I am full on begging the universe to just let me feel better. Like I just want to feel better. I just want to have some energy. I I just want to get some work done. I just want to get back to it. Like I don't even want to make any major plans. I did for a minute when the fever was really bad, and I just felt like I was never gonna feel anything but like the aches and the pains and the the horrible feeling. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out of this, and I'm gonna change the fucking world. I'm never gonna rest a second. I'm gonna get back into shape. Blah blah blah. You know, cop and please. Like like why why would I wait? until this moment to start making any major changes. But um I mean that's really what made me think about it. It's like I used to do the same thing when I was hungover. I'd be there laying in bed, feeling the the just destitution and, and just lack of any kind of cosmic energy. No no will to do shit. And then I'd be telling myself, you know what? That's it. This is last time. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to put myself through this. I'm not going to make myself have a whole day where I just do this in order to survive the nothing I did all weekend because I drank. And once I realized like the parallels there, you know, I kind of eased up off myself and yeah, it sucks. I don't, I don't want to feel like this anymore. This is um day eight. This is day eight of feeling like complete and utter dog shit. But I'm not like putting this mental pressure on my head that now I can't go the rest of my life without making a mark on the world because I don't ever want to feel like this again or whatever the hell my brain was making me think. But yeah, anyways, I woke up today and some of this is not going to make a lot of sense. I apologize ahead of time. It's really hard for me to hold a train of thought. I'm going to do my best to edit this and like take out anything that's obviously just fucking not even lining up. But i um, just warning folks ahead of time. it's It's scrambled eggs up here right now. So I apologize for that. I'm going to do my best though because um, I don't want to miss a, an episode uh, for any reason. So uh, we'll we'll do our best here. How was I saying? Yeah, so I woke up I woke up today and still still didn't feel any better. Uh, didn't feel any worse. My fever had finally broken um, the, the night before uh, and that had still stayed broken, so there's just a lot of relief there but woke up this morning and, and was like okay we're going to we're going to you know get all this stuff done and i made this big list in my head and and then fucking slept till noon anyways i was going to give myself a hard time about that and then started started kind of remembering that you know i'm i'm getting paid mostly for this there's a couple of days i think i'm going to miss because i just ran out of sick pay and i don't get covid coverage from work for it there's a, there's a limit to that but you know basically i'm getting paid for most of this I'm fucking incredibly thankful for that. I've I've worked jobs where I would not have gotten paid for this. My boss's concern was that I get better. She she got mad at me when I did try to work the other day. She gave me one task because she knew I was going to fucking try to do a, a stuff anyways, just so that she could meet me halfway and still was going to let me off with that like if I didn't get that done it was going to be fine. Um so I have, you know, I have work that cares about me. I have friends that have been checking on me regularly. I uh this blew my mind. My my grandmother called. She's leaving town to Arizona. And we talked for a little bit. This was on Friday. And uh, she called again on Sunday. No, Saturday. I don't remember. The days are all fucked off for me right now. Anyway, she called and then called back uh, the day later because she was genuinely worried about me. And now... The relationship that I have with my grandmother is a very unique one. It took me a long time to really learn how she expresses love for me and to really understand and and internalize that love that she expresses because it wasn't the kind that I wanted. So it took a long time for me to accept the kind that she was giving. And so she, she's never really been one to really express a lot of like concern once she just sort of figures I'll survive it. Cause I've survived all kinds of weird shit already. And while she might have like some general concerns about like what I'm doing with my money and stuff like that, I've never really heard her have genuine concern in her voice for my safety. And she called the second time and she was just, I could hear it when she was like, I was just worried about you. So one that freaked me out because man, I sound, I must sound way worse uh, then I think I do. And when I talked to her, I didn't think I was that far off. Uh, but two, like just, I don't know. It's when you, when you have somebody in your life that you've struggled to find that commonality with that common ground of how they really feel about you. And you hear real concern, you know, for what feels like the first time ever, really, that had a lot of impact on me. And, So, yeah, while I mean, physically, this reminds me of what a hangover feels like. Uh, It's definitely not. It's fucking some serious shit. I'm thankful that I'm not going to the hospital. One of my coworkers ended up also getting it, and she did end up having to go to the hospital. But I have, you know, I have people in my my corner rooting for me. I have friends and family that care. And um, even though I'm quarantined, I'm not alone. I I have things, you know, of value that I'm giving out to the world. I feel like this podcast is one of them. And it's something I will continue to do and uh you know in the midst of all this this is very rambly again I apologize do I'm doing my best here uh, in the midst of all this I had a friend of mine we've had a off and on again friendship the last couple of years his drinking got pretty bad we had a falling out and it's funny it was while I my drinking was still bad we, we both were in in our drinking pretty bad the the details of the falling out aren't really that important uh what what is is at one point, uh, what is important is I really hoped that my friend would, you know, come around and realize that when he's sober, he has a lot to offer the world. He really does. He's a he's a fucking kind-hearted, good guy. Super sensitive, uh, a little too much. I think he would he would agree. But he gets drunk, man, and like a lot of us. You know, it just gets into this uh, fucking mess, man. This sloppy mess. So we had a falling out. He ended up having a falling out with everybody in our little group. All, all people that have known each other since high school or even earlier. Uh, his In his case, he, he knew these my same friends a couple years after I went to prison. So there was some overlap there. They've all been friends for quite a long time. And me and him became friends when we became roommates. And uh, well, so he, you know, did the, did the rounds, man. Had a falling out with just about everybody. And I kept hoping, man, that I'd next time, like, you know, in my brain, it would just be these little like fake little scenarios where I'd run into him and he'd be all healthy looking and, and clean. And he'd, he'd be like, yeah, I got my shit together. And we'd talk and we'd bury the hatchet and things would go back on. This is somebody I... uh he was a, a friend of mine that I had a relationship with. That I didn't really get to share with others. We liked the same kind of movies and we would sit, or even not even the same kind of movies, just like talking about movies. We'd sit at a, at a bar and just talk about movies for two or three hours. And it became a regular thing of ours to do, which I don't, I started a whole fucking podcast specifically to do that because I didn't have anybody else in my life that would do that with me. That podcast didn't last. Uh, it was one of the things that I ended up cutting in order to make room for my last relationship, which, you know, was a mistake. But, you know, I have always loved that kind of stuff and never really had somebody that had the same inexhaustive ability to just riff on that stuff. When we had a falling out, it was really hard for me to to deal with because, I mean, that was a very important part of who I am and, and the kind of person I am. Very big part of my interests. M- missing the person I used to share that with, you know, was kind of a bummer. It's been about... Well, it it had been a little longer than how long I'd been sober because I got sober not too long after that. Our falling out had had, uh, you know, it was was just another brick to stack on to the reasons why I felt like I needed to to end things. I felt like I couldn't even keep friends with people that wanted to be friends with me. So I kept hoping I'd run into the guy and it didn't really happen. I admitted I made a new Facebook account. He used to be blocked on another one. And anyways, we, he hit me up and we kind of talked a little bit. You know, it sounds like he's getting some things back on track. You know, he's got a, he's got a job. He's quitting smoking he's, he's doing small things to really help himself. And he's been trying to quit drinking. I know this guy like fairly well. And I know that AA probably isn't something he's going to respond to. He's not that type. Um, but I gave him some information about smart recovery because he kind of asked about it. And I gave him some information about a couple of other options that are out there. Uh, it's the first time he's ever asked. He knows that I've, I'm not drinking. I told him, you know, when we reconnected, he said he'd actually been following my Instagrams. So he he was up on it and he felt hurt that I didn't try to reach out to him sooner and that uh, he thought we all hated him. You know, I know how that is. I know what goes on in people's minds when people start cutting contact with you. And and it's something he didn't know that I reassured him about was every time we all got together. First thing that we asked about was, has anybody heard from so-and-so? Do we, do we know where he's at? Is he doing okay? Um, cause we've all, none of us are ma- malicious, man. None of us want someone to fall on hard times. You know, some people had allowed him to stay there for free. Some people, had, you know, they'd move mountains to, to do what they could. And, and it took a long time to get to the part where, you know, they all started having to kind of cut him out. I don't think he really put that in perspective before. I, I think he just internalized it. Like, and I can relate to that. But anyways, he reached out and he said he wants to quit. He said he gets to about three weeks and then he starts back up again. I think this is the first time in his life he's ever gotten to the part to where he knows that's what needs to go next. It makes me really happy. Makes me really happy that he talked to me about it. It makes me really happy that he's interested in that because I just know I know him. He, I know what he's capable of. And I know that the only thing keeping him back right now is is that he drinks a lot. He's got a lot of work to do after that. But the only thing stopping him from doing that work seems to be his drinking, man. So kudos to him. And I feel really privileged that he felt able and willing to talk to me even though we had had that falling out. And uh, hopefully once I get better, we can meet up and eat some tacos and talk about movies. All right, I'm going to get into the stoic reading after this. Uh, I apologize for how... I've probably apologized a few times for how rambly this is, but I haven't had anybody to talk to physically. I've been sending a lot of messages, text messages and stuff. It's been my only real communication with people, so uh, this is the most amount of words I've strung together in in eight days uh, physically. So I'm a little tired, I'm a little wore out. My throat hurts and uh, it's hard to breathe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna call this little bit good, and then the next chunks will be we'll get into the stoic reading, and then we'll get into. Uh, the next chapter of the big book. All right, so it's been a couple days since I recorded the very first little bits of this. My, you know, struggle health-wise seems to be improving. I think I may be at like 85%. In any event, I should be able to get the rest of this episode done and and out on time and everything moving along nice and smoothly. I I babbled pretty heavily in the first half, so we're just going to try to get right into the stoic reading now. This is going to be for October 26th when this episode comes out. Three parts, one aim. The best and greatest number of authors have asserted that philosophy consists of three parts, the moral, the natural, and the rational. The first puts the soul in order. The second thoroughly examines the natural order of things. The third inquires into the proper meaning of words and their arrangements and proofs which, which keep falsehoods from creeping in to displace truths. Seneca, Moral Letters, 89.9 These three parts, the moral, the natural, and the rational, have one aim. As different as they are, they have the same purpose, to help you live a good life ruled by reason, not in the future, but right now. You know, in the past, I've typically had a lot to say about these stoic readings, but this one's kind of left me not as motivated, I guess. Like, it's a pretty, it's fairly on the nose. Like, of course, the purpose of, you know, this program that we're we're kind of all looking at right now, as I read through the book, um, any kind of a program like it, it all it all is based kind of on these three sets of principles, you know? Yeah, AA sort of has us look at our morality as it was, tries to examine a, a path to a morality as it could be, gives us that purpose of, you know, being in the moment of what our morality is. And, you know, that's based on both the past and the, and the future, where we hope it might be. And that same thing kind of goes for, you know, the natural order of things, meaning, it, you know it, it is what it is like the the world as it is it, you, of course there's just things we're not going to be able to control or have an effect on. Uh, the only thing we really can is our our current moral state and rationally how we look at the the current national natural state at least that's what I'm getting from this you know it's just a very basic concept of what for me is living in the moment and that's what it is the idea that, I examine who I was as a person. I look at that based on who I wanna be as a person. And then I try to examine how closely I'm living that as I am right now, regardless of what the natural state of the world is. And you know, I look at the political state of our world. I look at the health concerns that are now being brought to the forefront. I look at the options and choices that people are having to make and our reactions to those. I look at where the future of our country seems to be heading. I look at the fact that I don't know where it actually is heading. I look at look at all that stuff, but I also look at where we've come from. I look at where I've come from and then all I can do is take that information and hold it up against who I am today. That's all I can do. And if there's something that's lacking, then I then I can work on that. And if there's something I'm being successful with, then I can acknowledge that. Um, It's as simple as that. And. What AA, I feel like, offers me is an opportunity to have a checklist uh, that others follow as well. So I don't feel alone in this struggle, even though it is a very personal thing what I'm doing. I hope that made sense. You know, usually there's a bit more profoundness in some of the what I read out of that book, but I, I guess just simply stating what the purpose of all this is, is profound in its own way. Even though it's a very simple concept. I mean, the whole the whole thing is so simple, honestly, once it's put on paper. I used to be an asshole, I don't want to be an asshole anymore, and today I can say that I wasn't one. That's, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's not really a fancier way of putting that, which is good because I kind of front-loaded this with enough baff, uh, babbling, so I think that, that gives me an opportunity to uh, uh, move on to the next the next phase here. The next thing here is is the chapter, man. It's, it's two employers. Now, I don't know how many people are actually familiar with this chapter, But what I like about it is it's like the least preachiest of the chapters, even though it's written under the idea that employers would be reading this book to try to understand their alcoholic employees a little better. It's also written with this sort of concept in mind of putting you in the place of these employers as the person in recovery, like what you're asking of these employers and what the hope is that they will, you know, treat you as Uh, in light of your new, you know, situation. The other thing about this chapter that's really important that I don't think a lot of people know, or at least not enough people know, is this is the only confirmed chapter that was not written by Bill Wilson. Uh, There's still a lot of speculation about the other chapters. I myself have gone down the road of speculation and then been proven wrong, but there still is also some ambiguity. I don't think I said that right, whatever. uh, About who wrote what. You know, a lot of people assume that the... Two Wives, Alanon style chapter was written by Lois. I think there might have just been a lot of input put there, maybe. I hope. Bill R- Wilson wasn't the one put in charge of writing a chapter that was dedicated to women, but come on, man, it was the 1930s. Of course, men thought they knew better than women. It's just the f- fucking sad nature of, like, the society at the time. We're still fighting against that now, so it wouldn't be surprising if Bill was like, now Lois, <laughs> I know I know what I'm talking about. I know what you went through better than you did. I could just see it happening, okay? So uh, putting that aside, so Two Employers uh, was written by Hank P., Hank Parkhurst. And the reason why that would be important, why I haven't really been touching on a lot of the history in in all of these chapters, this one specifically has a little bit more history to it. I think that's that's important because Hank was an atheist. He had the opportunity to write this chapter. He's also kind of butt heads with... With Bill Wilson on a few of the other things that I've mentioned before, like some of the structuring of the 12 steps, some of the wording, really doubling down on the uh, the God as you understand him, that sort of thing. He had, um, you know, a big say in that uh, he was one of those re- rebellious folks in AA and had a lot to do with just sort of that core ideal that, you know, this is an inclusive program uh, that is not built on any religious sect in particular, and that includes no religion at all. So it is important to understand that, well, there's a few reasons why that's important. One, anytime that I hear that people are not being inclusive, I I try to remind them of the fact that the fucking program was built on just a ragtag group of misfit ass drunk motherfuckers that didn't want to drink anymore and then included atheists. So to feel like we can't include them now as we progress, as we become progressive as an organization is fucking stupid and gatekeeping and I won't stand for it period. You're not going to tell me or anybody like me that I can't be here just because I don't believe in God. It's fucking built into the goddamn thing. It is built into the program, period. I've said that before. I'll say it again. And with as much of fucking venom every time. Um, the second thing is that this is one of the few examples where Bill, where Bill Wilson was like, well, I've never been an employer, so I should turn to somebody who was. He turned to somebody who knew better than him and allowed that person to, to write that chapter. Uh, The third thing is this really showcases. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this book that does this, but this chapter in particular really showcases just how blindly these people were sort of flailing around the idea of, of recovery. This, this chapter is awful when it comes to like advice to give an employer. There's nobody in a modern setting right now that would read this chapter and be like, oh, I understand my alcoholic employees a lot better. One, you have to assume that the person reading this has already identified an employee as an alcoholic, which goes against the principle of the book that you can be the only person that really determines if you're an alcoholic or not. Two, why would an employer... Pick this book up. Why would an employer pick this up for an employee that has a drinking problem? Just independently. Um, why would an employee hand this book to their boss? You know, like it just was so disconnected. But in the minds of the people that, you know, that originated this whole program at the very beginning, they thought it was going to be so huge that people were going to run, around, run out and buy this book no matter what. It, it really hinged on people buying this book, even though they didn't really want to make a ton of money off of it. knew as an organization they had to make some money so in their minds they not only felt that this book was going to be so successful that just it was going to find its way into the hands of employers right Or, or wives or the children of alcoholics or whoever else wanted this book like it was going to just fly off the shelves but they were kind of hinging on it doing that like they really put everything into this they went for broke they asked all the questions. Well, what if an employer reads this? Okay, well, we should make a chapter for that. What if the wife reads this? Okay, well, we should make a chapter for that. You know, they just hoped for the best. And when they I mean, that's really what this chapter feels like is I'm kind of shooting at the dark, like hoping that okay, if an employer reads this, we need to be prepared for that. Because in the 30s, you know, if you were if you were a drunk, man, like that was I don't know. It it just wasn't something that you were. Like you you hid it from everybody. And the people that kind of knew would be the people that were helping you drink. Back in the day, your boss would have a drink with you. Like, people just drink at work. They'd have liquor in their drawers. You know, they'd have a bar in their office. This shit was common. you put it on your work tab if you were a salesman. If you were a, an executive, like, having a couple drinks after work or with employees or with clients was just a normal everyday thing. So making this chapter... Uh, with that in mind, was was sort of revolutionary in its own way. It's just kind of like blowing the lid off that. I mean, before mom o'clock, where anybody who has ever had a child is now entitled to drink a bottle of wine every single day, or whatever that whole fucking craze is. This was the commonplace. You know, men drank, and men who worked hard drank more, and they drank with their employees, and they drank to celebrate, and they drank to, to suffer losses, and they just drank. So this chapter was a really big kind of a deal when it came to that. The other thing is, you know, Hank had a lot to do with the sort of business success of the book. Like, it was such a weird time. You know, they just... in this part of the history, I don't really know the the, the exact details of it. I know that the Rockefellers were involved at one point in trying to make, they were going to be helping open a bunch of hospitals and shit for, for AA. Like that was like kind of part of the dream was to just have all these centers around that there would be recovery centers and medical facilities. And when that fell through, it seemed like, which I'm glad it did. I think that would have really just convoluted the whole thing. Anytime big money gets involved, that's exactly what happens with these kinds of things. Um, So I'm glad that didn't happen. They they needed the book to be a success because there's people that were doing this stuff for free, but they couldn't continue to do it. They weren't going to be able to do it for free forever. They needed to be able to pay for themselves. That's kind of how the program has worked since then. And I know there's a lot of people that will have... They just have these weird criticisms, like, well, AA's, is, you know, operating at a profit, and that they're, they're, you know, they make all their money off the big books and all these other book sales. And look, if, after I read this chapter, after we read this together, you'll, you'll see that if they were, if AA were really trying to make an actual profit, like a cult style profit, they wouldn't be resting on the laurels of this one book. They would have written and rewritten this book a thousand times over because it would sell. It obviously would sell. The fact that this fucking book sells, it just is an indicator that any book that uh, the central office deems fitting for AA would sell, but they don't do it. They're not re- re, they have not rewritten this book. They have not pumped out chapter after chapter, update of after update. Like this book's been revised so few times and when it is, it isn't sold at a premium. Like I can buy this book right now through an AA meeting for the cost of the book it's not an inflated cost. I bought my last book for nine dollars from the AA group I was in. So that wasn't like it didn't mean somebody had to like front the other cost of it. That's how much the book cost for the group, and that's how much I paid for is Is nine dollars. There's a hardback version of the book, so yeah, maybe they're making some profit, but they're not making fucking enough for it to be a concern to me. Uh, this chapter shows that. They, I mean, many of the chapters show, but this one specifically shows that even though this book is sorely overdue for an update, uh, it, it obviously is overdue for an update, they still haven't done it. And do, I mean, do you, are we really going to suggest that it's still out of a continued fear that if they updated the book, then people would stop coming to AA or something like that? Like, that's not really how this program seems to be working. You know, any any real attempt to go down that path is kind of a conspiracy theory level, you know, brain acrobatics to require it, it to come around to them still being in bed with the Rockefellers and making all these millions and millions of dollars off of these suffering alcoholics. And all that just sounds really stupid. I'm, I'm kind of getting sidetracked here. So let's kind of ring this back. So Hank... Hank had a lot to do with this book being published. Bill had a lot to do with it being written. uh, And Hank, who had some sense of business in him, who had had employees, who had ran businesses, was the real linchpin in getting this book actually published in a way that it would be profitable. And again, the reason why that's important is we're talking about a non-believer putting that much on the line to get this book published because he believed in the program enough to get it published. He didn't get the best publishing. They are not. They didn't fucking die millionaires. Uh, Bill may have had some cash when he died, but it sounds like he was still pretty fucking broke himself. They could have. They could have made so much money from this. They could have written it into a bylaw that allowed them to continue to, like, seek profits after the first or second or third revision. Like, I mean, they could have written so many things into this contract and make themselves fucking all of the money, and they didn't do it. They just didn't. That's, I mean, there's no way of looking at it other than that. No, Were they perfectly altruistic and didn't, you know, pocket some cash? I fucking don't know. I mean, this idea that people would create a program like this it, after having pulled themselves from like the brink of despair and destruction and, and personal hardships to not help themselves a little bit, you know, to, to feel like that if they did, then they were taken advantage, which I don't think they were uh, of the program. Like there's no fine line there. I mean, I guess if that's where people's brains need to go, it's like the the scandal that could be there. That's fine. You can You can go there. I think Bill wrote this book to help people. And when he saw that he could make a profit with the Rockefellers, they didn't pursue it in a way that... I mean, they probably could have, they could have sold this thing. Think about that. The fucking richest people in the entire world came and were like, yeah, we'll do this thing, but you gotta, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And they didn't. Maybe it fell through for other reasons, but I have a feeling with Bill being the kind of salesman that he was, if he wanted to, he would have, he could have easily have sold this thing, sold it to the highest bidder and didn't, I don't know. What's important is Hank P., was an atheist who helped write this chapter, helped shape some of the aspects of the big book, and helped get this book published. And without a lot of the work that he did, I don't think this book would have ever reached any kind of a, publish- a, a state to even be published. So the program owes a lot to this guy. And the program doesn't really talk about it much. The reason is because in 1940, he went back to drinking. This is where I sort of have an issue with like how AA treats relapse. This idea that you forget everything that you ever learned if you relapse, like you start from zero. He relapsed, so everything that he did seemed to be to mean nothing, I guess. And that's kind of how it's been treated, is, well, he drank, so that erases all the good he did. And I don't believe that for a second. Um, I think that's bullshit. If you're counting years, yeah, your years start over, but that doesn't mean your knowledge does, or your experiences, you don't lose all that. Just like we don't when we stop drinking. It doesn't just immediately start us from zero from the time that we drank. We don't just forget all about the bad stuff, right? So uh, just because you relapse or go back out doesn't mean it erases all the good that you've done. And it sucks that Hank Ping went out and he ended up dying a drunk. But um, at the end of the day, AA would not have been the program it is if it wasn't for the guy. So I'm thankful for the time he did spend here with us sober and the work that he put in all right so let's get uh let's get into reading the chapter so i'm gonna do my best to try to get this all into one episode but i'm not gonna lie this chapter is super weird and there's a lot of stuff probably to, to, to riff on it's the least god heavy of the of the chapters but it, it is the most outdated i feel like in a lot of ways right up there with two wives that one's pretty fucking outdated so in my app here it starts on page 136 uh, again i'm using an app that's available in at least the Android store. I think it's also available in the iPhone store, the the Apple store. It's just called the Big Book of AA, or AA Big Book, excuse me. It has a lot of utility. In fact, it's one of the the cooler apps I've seen in here as far as this kind of stuff goes. You could log like your sobriety date in there, so it'll kind of help you track that if you're into that sort of thing. It gives you a list of meetings. It has an audio version. I think you have to donate a little bit for the audio version to become unlocked. It has the entire big book, including all the appendices and the forewords. But I think this is like the third revision. Um, It also has what I really like. It has the the 12 steps, 12 traditions uh, and all the personal stories that are in this. But it also has a community board, so you can post if you like. If you want to become involved in the community, um, you can make comments and stuff like that and make a post, whatever you need to do. Uh, But it also, like I said, it has the entire book in here. It just, I think it might have kind of a weird format that makes some of its pages not line up other ones. Anyways, page 136 as far as I know for those following along. Among many employers nowadays, we think of one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. He has hired and fired hundreds of men. (laughs) He knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere. But let him tell you, I was at one time assistant manager of a corporation department employing 6,600 men. One day, my secretary came in saying, Mr. B insisted on speaking with me. I told her to say that I was not interested. I had warned him several times that he had but one more chance. Not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford on two successive days, so drunk he could hardly speak. I told him he was through, finally and forever. My secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone. It was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected to plea for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying you were the best boss he ever had, and that you were not to blame in any way. I'm going to go on record right now and say that either this is utter bullshit, or... What kind of a situation leaves a person in such despair that the thought in their head is, man, I better make sure my boss knows this isn't his fault. Like, yeah, I guess I kind of get it. When I woke up from my suicide attempt, the first thought in my mind was, well, it's four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be or 530. I think it was 530 in the morning and I had to be at work in a few minutes. I think it was. Anyways, the time frame was the first next thing I was supposed to do had I not tried to kill myself was go to work. So I told my boss. Now, if it had been on a day off or something like that, I'm pretty sure when I woke up, my first thought wouldn't be, man, I hope my boss is going to be okay with this. So I don't know. The the note thing, it just seems like hyperbole. What a weird, weird society that we live in that the concept of I better let my fucking boss know how I feel about my fucking suicide comes to play like how important is the fucking cogs we make every day jesus anyways this is getting a little sidetracked here not that that's ever happened uh another time as i opened a letter which lay on my desk a newspaper clipping fell out it was the obituary of one of the best salesmen i ever had after two weeks of drinking he had placed his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun the barrel was in his mouth i had discharged him for drinking six weeks before so i'm going to say this is really weird to me that in this book so far Suicide hasn't really been talked about too much, but now suddenly when it be, when it becomes involving work, we're talking about suicide a bunch. That's how important work seems to be, I guess in that time, maybe it is still now, that you know, your job could lead you to fucking suicide even if you are a drinker or not. I I don't know what the I don't know why that this is the first page and a half that we've read is about this guy hearing about suicides involving him as an employer and his employees. That just seems really weird to me. Still another experience. A woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force. Four days before, he had hanged himself in his woodshed. Three. Three suicides so far. I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I have ever known. God, this is so fucking weird. I don't remember this. Well, I guess the last time I read this wasn't from a place of having just committed suicide. Well, maybe. Yeah, I read this with my sponsor. Maybe we talked about this. I don't know. It seems like it's just such a fucking weird way to start the chapter about, you know, out about employers. This is, a, this is the relationship between employees and, and their employer is what we're supposed to be talking about. And so far we're talking about this guy having had three of his employees kill himself shortly after he let them go. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What a fucked up way of prefacing this. Putting that on the responsibility of employers. Okay, what irony. I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall costs the business community unknown thousands of dollars, for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by a better understanding all around. Okay, look. I just can't get past this. Here, here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. Okay, first and foremost, it is not the employer's responsibility to make sure that their employees don't kill themselves. Now, if you're putting them in a work position in a position that their work conditions are leading them to suicide, that's fucked up, and that should probably be talked about. But if you feel like as an employer and I'm speaking to people that are employers who few there might be listening to this, um, I, it it is a weird concept to me. To put that kind of responsibility on somebody whose only responsibility is to make sure that their employees are producing a thing, whatever that thing is that they need to produce, Now I would hope that that would come with a respectful approach, and um, you know a dignified way of treating their employees, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Our uh, work community. The way that it's built, it's not really a protected thing to treat your, you know, you don't have to treat your employees with respect and dignity. Uh, There's some aspects that are protected harassment and stuff like that, you know, makes it a little bit more difficult. But, you know, there's nothing that says your employer can't be an asshole. But that being said, I really just cannot get behind the idea that one, this guy feels he would ever feel responsible for somebody's life uh, because he doesn't understand their personal battles and nobody else should feel that way. My boss should not, I would hope, didn't come away thinking, man, if I had just given him you know, a better work environment, maybe he wouldn't have tried to kill himself. That's fucking absurd to me. Uh, it wasn't in relation to anything. My boss was really cool and gave me time to sort of wrap my head around my situation and get better. He gave me a couple days off and I, and I didn't have to pay for those days and it wasn't a big deal. But that wasn't even a requirement. You know, it, it should not be an exception that my boss did something like that. But it kind of is like I'm, I've am i worked for places where they'd be like, but cool. OK, you're still coming in. Right. Not even kidding. I've worked for places like the Dollar Tree. I'll put them on blast would have absolutely been like, hey, but you're still coming in. Right. In fact, when I had a mental breakdown, I had to go into urgent care. And I had to get a written permission slip basically that said, uh, he's allowed to not be at work right now because he's having a mental health crisis because my district manager was blowing up my phone that I was a half hour late due to the fact that I felt like I was having a heart attack. I mean, you know, not all work environments are the same. Some are not created the same. some are awful, but that doesn't mean that any of that is responsible for people's livelihood as far as like suicide. Like if it is, that's a huge problem But the way that this chapter is approaching it is this person is basically making it seem like if you don't understand alcoholism as an employer, you're killing your employees. What the fuck? That is not how this works. My boss should never have to understand alcoholism in my recovery. Uh, You you know, like that's just not a, that's not how that works. (laughs) Just isn't. I do have a cool boss right now that has heard some of my story just because we've got to know each other. Uh, but on paper, HR wise, that's as far as that should ever, and it's probably farther than it should go. Um, if I were to have a crisis of some kind, I feel like I could talk to her at least on some level and be like, Hey, I'm going through some shit. And we would figure out like what the best approach, you know, for that is for both the company and me. Um, but again, none of that's a requirement. Maybe I'm going a little too far into this because I'm not a super big fan of hardcore fucking capitalism uh, to the point of you know suicide. But I don't like that this is already putting a lot of responsibility on employers, employers to understand their employees to the point of reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That should not be a requirement. If an employee is struggling, then, you know, that's up to them to decide how they're going to approach their, their boss with that. But I don't think this is a preemptive strike that bosses should be like, I need to understand why my, my employees are having such a hard time like this. Not on this personal level. Provide the resources, you know, that, that are available to allow them to help themselves in their struggles. But I, what are we, this, this chapter is going to be really weird. Sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on that. Nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his help, and he tries to meet these responsibilities. That he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. To him, the alcoholic has often seemed a fool of the first magnitude. Because of the employee's special ability or of his own strong personal attachment to him, employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond a reasonable period. Some employers have tried every known remedy. In only a few instances has there been a lack of patience and tolerance, and we who have imposed on the best of employers can sparsely blame them if they have been short with us. Okay, so, I okay, yeah, There's there is some, I guess, aspect of this where... What, what it's asking is that our employers be reasonable. Uh, but there is also, social contract speaking, no reason for our employers to like bend over backwards to help us if we're just being drunks. Like fucking that's just ridiculous if we're not if our attendance is slipping and we're having a hard time and we're not even making an effort to do anything about that it's not our employer's job to be like hey i read this book man and i think it could help you uh you just need to like recover and get better that that to me is an unreasonable burden to saddle on our employers in a perfect society that maybe that might be different but having been an employer and an employee i just see that as not necessarily being something that should be the responsibility of the employer but that being said, I have had employ when I was uh, just gotten out of prison and I was living with my fiance at the time and had gone on my benders. Um, it required me to miss work and I was given not passes because I went in there and faced my responsibilities. I, you know, but hey, I've, I drank, I fucked up, you know, let me make this better. And even working for Dollar Tree, I had a district manager, I'd, I'd fucked my car up. In the parking lot of the Dollar Tree of my work. Because I went in with the intention of beating up the night manager. That's a story for a different day. Uh, But let's just say he called me a bunch of names that at that moment in time were fighting words. And I was going to go fucking let him have it. And anyways, wreck my car instead. And... Because of how I owned up to it, I guess, I was able to to be offered a, a second chance. Um, and I didn't get fired on the spot, which probably should have happened. Some of it was just because they didn't have a replacement for me. And some of it was because of how I talked to my management. But they didn't offer me... Obviously, I mean, I'm sure I still smelt like alcohol. They knew I slept in the parking lot because the police had come and they told me that I couldn't drive the car away. They couldn't drive anyways, but you know, there's a bunch of drama involved in this, and it had to do with my alcohol intake that everybody knew was a problem. But I would have been there. There would have been no right way for either of those management team members to tell me, "Hey, your drinking's an issue. You need to get that under control." The best that my Boss did was offer. Look, there's recovery options if that's something you need. As far as like what our employment offered, you know what I mean? Like, hey, this is what this is what HR gives us. We can give that to you. That's as most as that's as much as I think I would have expected. I was honestly kind of blown away by the whole situation that I didn't lose my job. Maybe that's kind of what this is referring to. is this idea that some some bosses just some employers just sort of see that the struggle has the potential to be fixed. Sometimes it's worth it, depending on the employee, case by case, I guess. I don't know. This is a very weird chapter so far. It does have me thinking about a couple of things, though. I forgot about wrecking that car, and I forgot about um, basically begging my first boss. It's the first boss I had out of prison to to not fire me and to not tell my PO. Anyways, uh, here, for instance, is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. One day, he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. His comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three-month leave of absence, has taken a cure, looks fine, and to clinch the matter. The board of directors told him this was his last chance. Personally speaking, that hearing somebody say that's my last chance would have done absolutely nothing to curb my drinking. The only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bust than ever. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. Doing him an injustice. What is the injustice? They fucking didn't fire him for the bullshit. Like what would what would be what do they expect these employers to do man i pointed out that i had nothing to drink whatever for three years and this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of ten men drink their heads off oh oh i hate oh give me a fucking break i hate that i mean, and i probably shouldn't say the word hate with in conjunction with other people's like fucking feelings of superiority but this idea that i've been through more than you that i didn't drink Like, how the fuck do you know what people have been through, man? How do you know what people can handle? Nine out of ten men would have drank if they'd have handled even half of the shit. Fuck all of that kind of nonsense. Humble thyself, motherfucker. What? kind of like award would you be seeking i know there's people out there listening to this that may still be stuck on the idea that they've gone through more than other people and therefore they are somehow stronger because they didn't drink despite that like fuck all of that kind of nonsense thinking this isn't a racer contest this is all about fucking not drinking anymore. And if you feel like the hardships that you've gone through are harder than other people's, then look at that as an opportunity to, to offer support for people that might not have as, as an easy of a time overcoming these in, you know impossible to overcome obstacles. You're like don't this measure this dick measurement of like suffrage is so fucking weird to me. And I get it on like a core level of why people do this. This idea that they have to like prove that they earn their seat or that they, you know, they're fucking, they're manly men or tough guys or tough girls or whatever. And that they've overcome more than others. Fuck that. This is about overcoming more than you have. You overcoming more than you have and then helping the next person do the same. It is not a fucking contest. Suffrage is not a contest and it's not one you should be trying to win. And I just... I'm having a hard time now with this chapter, knowing that that's where the direction is that this guy's coming from. And this is a guy I really respect because of the work that they've done. Uh, Why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? Oh, no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he is minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement, for I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from a serious illness. There was nothing to do but wait. Presently, the man did slip and was fired. Following his discharge, we contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding as to what real, really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part of employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. Now, I can, I can get behind the kind of concept that they're going for here, like the idea that we should invest in our employees, even if they're struggling from something like alcoholism, is a great idea. It really is. And it and it kind of calls to the, the concept that we should have resources in place at different companies, I guess, if that's their thing, that allows for employees to be able to, to handle this kind of stuff if this is what direction they need to go. Like if somebody is struggling from something, there should be rehab options, recovery options, things of that nature. Um, or at least some sort of resources to get people going down that path. I just don't think it should necessarily be handled by the employer. My employer is not a recovery specialist. They should not be the one deciding for me that I'm an alcoholic. How awkward would it be for your employer to call you into their office and be like, hey, I see that you have a problem drinking and I think you should do something about it. And I feel like that's the direction that this book is trying to take things. And I think that's kind of the bad direction. I think that's why this chapter gets a lot of flack from people. Rightfully so, honestly. So much of this book so far has been telling us that nobody can tell you that you're an alcoholic. And this whole chapter is basically like, if you know that your employees are an alcoholic because they drink a lot, then here's what you should be doing. Such a very weird take. Uh, Back to the reading. If you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, whatever that is, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things which, so far as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head, and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be anyone else save the spineless and stupid. Weird, weird chapter. I don't think this is even directed at the alcoholic anymore, or the employer anymore. This is more directed at anybody that's not a problem drinker. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a neutral annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. And I, I'll I'll, say that I do feel that this is true. There's still so many people even in my life who think that this is some kind of a choice. That... Like I wanted to drink myself to death um, and that it was just some sort of a weird weakness that would allow me to do that. And that's just how people are, man. Like that's just how they are. But to expect my employer, I don't know. I think societally that stigma should change and then therefore employers would change how they view their employers, employees who have problems with alcoholism. Uh, but this, is, this isn't this is really directed at society, right? This is directed specifically at an employer who is hopefully reading this. So it seems it just seems tone deaf. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. Is he not usually brilliant, fast-thinking, imaginative, and likable? I mean, take it easy, Hank. (laughs) Like, I get the glow-up, but uh, that's not at all always the case. Just because we're drunks doesn't mean that we're fucking geniuses. We're not like tortured savants uh, who just chose alcoholism to be able to uh, manage the struggle internally with how just pure unadulterated, quick thinking genius as we are. Uh, when sober, does he not work hard and have a knack of getting things done? If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, whether the reason are humanitarian or business or both, then the following suggestions may be helpful. Now, I do like how that is worded in saying that, you know, as an employer, if you're looking at an employee that is struggling with something like alcoholism or addiction or something along those lines, would, are they still worth keeping? And if, if not, then consider if it was diabetes that they were struggling with or some other kind of an ailment, would you still feel that same way? Like, I don't like the idea that this is strictly a disability my alcoholism wasn't necessarily a disability that you know kind of it kind of gives me the the out that uh it is completely beyond my control obviously it's not or i wouldn't have been able to choose aa as an option uh diabetics can manage their symptoms so other people with that with disabilities can do some things uh but there's just aspects of it that are going to be completely outside of themselves and consideration should always be made I guess for me, it's more a matter of like what level of consideration should be made for people that are struggling with alcohol and drugs in the workplace. If I mean, if my drinking was causing my my production to slip to the point to where I was not being a valuable member of the company and was like a hardship to the company, I would understand being let go. That's just how it works. If I were not struggling with alcoholism and that was happening, I would understand being let go. Like I shouldn't get a free pass just because I'm a drunk, you know, that's having some hard times. Like that's not fair to the other employees. Um. Anyways, can you discard the feeling that you are dealing with habit with stubbornness or a weak will? If this presents difficulty rereading chapters two and three, where alcoholic sickness is discussed at length might be worthwhile. This is, this book is asking employers to read this book, <laughs> the whole book to Okay. That's where I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Now nope. we've gone a little too far the other direction. Yes, I want my employer to have some sort of a reasonable understanding of my situation and allow me to, to do some work in order to rectify that situation. But I do not think at any point should my boss have to read this fucking book to understand my situation better. That's not a, that's not a part of them being reasonable. What a weird thing for this book to be asking. You as a businessman want to know the necessities before considering the result. If you can see that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain? I well remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. What is he talking about? Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the aberrations of the alcoholic. A prominent doctor told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. What the fuck? Sorry, I don't know what this person is talking about in this case. I don't know what kind of an instance. Like, he's like basically telling employers now that, you know, hey, we got brain damage. (laughs) All of us or something. I don't know. What a weird... Your, your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps pretty messy ones. They may be disgusting. You, you may be at a loss to understand how such a seemingly aboveboard chap could be so involved. But these scrapes can generally be charged, no matter how bad, to the abnormal action of alcohol on his mind. When drinking or getting over about an alcoholic sometimes, the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion will be terrible. Nearly always, these antics indicate nothing more than temporary conditions. Like, is it telling employees or employers that, hey, you know, when they're drunk, they do some weird shit, but it's not on purpose and it's okay? I don't know. This is not to say that all alcoholics are honest and upright when not drinking. Good. It's fucking true. Of course that isn't so, and such people may often impose on you. Seeing your attempt to understand and help, some men will try to take advantage of your kindness. If you are sure your man does not want to stop, he may well be discharged the sooner the better. You are not doing him a favor by keeping him on. Firing such an individual may prove a blessing to him. It may be just the jolt he needs. I know in my own particular case that nothing my company could have done would have stopped me for so long as I was able to hold my position. I could not possibly realize how serious my situation was. Had they fired me first and had they then taken steps to see that I was presented with the solution contained in this book, I might have returned to them six months later, a well man. What the fuck? No, if my employer fires me because I'm an I'm an asshole and I'm drinking and I'm not producing, I don't then expect them to sh- what show up at my house like, hey, have you thought about quitting drinking? This AA thing might work for you. What a fucking weird concept that these people are like trying to propose here. And it's something it does bring up that I think is very important, that is very, very important. And I may have mentioned it before in other episodes of this thing just because somebody quits drinking doesn't immediately put them in a position of some sort of superiority or holierness or whatever just because somebody did bad things when they drank doesn't mean they're bad people but just because they quit drinking doesn't mean that they're immediately good people and just because somebody's been sober a long time doesn't mean that they're a good person those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand if they're not doing the work of the program i don't care how much sobriety somebody has If they're assholes, they're assholes. If they're shitty people, they're shitty people. Just because somebody says they're an AA, that may include them in the membership of the program and they can attend meetings and participate. But that doesn't immediately mean that they're working this program in any kind of way that absolves them of being an asshole or a terrible person, period. So, you know, I feel like they kind of touch on that in here when they say that, you know, hey, just because not everybody's good people. It's just the plane of it. Uh, But not everybody in AA is good people sorry it's just them's them's the facts but there are many men who want to stop and with them you can go far your understanding treatment of their cases will pay dividends perhaps you have such a man in mind he wants to quit drinking and you want to help him even if it be only a matter of good business you now know more about alcoholism you can see that he is mentally and physically sick you are willing to overlook his past performances Suppose an approach is made something like this. Okay, why would you be willing to look past his past performances? I mean, again, I just feel like this is putting a lot of a lot of burden on the employers to go above and beyond for just specifically this person who seems to be struggling with alcoholism. Why wouldn't you be doing this for the rest of your employees? I'm not saying that we weren't deserving of like some sort of special consideration at some point just to give us an idea that people cared, but like <laughs> If you have this many people that work underneath you and you're spending all your time and resources on this one person, like specifically why? It's so weird. You may say you appreciate his abilities, would like to keep him, but cannot if he continues to drink. A firm attitude at this point has helped many of us. Nope. You just said in the beginning of this chapter that it wouldn't matter if they told you you can't drink anymore or not. You were going to go out and drink. I mean, like that was part of this, right? Like it said, we told him he couldn't drink. Right. And then the the employer found out that the guy went out and drank anyways. Now it's saying, well, now that you have an understanding of an alcohol, uh, alcoholic, then now you can tell him you can come back if you don't drink. What? Next, he can be assured that you do not intend to lecture, moralize or condemn. That if this was done formally, it was because of a misunderstanding. If possible, express a lack of hard feeling toward him. At this point, it might might be well to explain alcoholism, the illness. No, 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 no. Your employer should not be sitting down with you and telling you about alcoholism. What the fuck? Say that you believe he is a gravely ill person. With this qualification being perhaps fatally ill, does he want to get well? You ask because many alcoholics being warped and drugged do not want to quit. But does he? Will he take every necessary step? Submit to anything to get well to stop drinking forever. Okay, fucking full stop. Nope. Your employer should not be doing this. You as an employer should not be doing this to your employee. I couldn't imagine a situation where HR is like, yes, you should sit down with your alcoholic employee and tell him the benefits of quitting alcohol. No, fucking do not do this. (laughs) Please do not do this. If he says yes, does he really mean it? Or down inside does he think he is fooling you and that after rest and treatment, he will be able to get away with a few drinks now and then. We believe a man should be thoroughly probed on these points. Be satisfied he is not deceiving himself or you. Whether you mention this book is a matter of your discretion. If he temporizes and still thinks he can never drink again, even beer, he might as well be discharged after the next bender, which, if an alcoholic, he is almost certain to have. He should understand that emphatically. Either you... Are dealing with a man who can and will get well or not, or you are not. If not, why waste time with him? This may seem severe, but it is usually the best course. Such a weird. Again, I'm, I just can't fucking get past this weird, like flip-flop. This chapter is doing. Hank, man, what the fuck were you thinking? After satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, you may suggest a definite course of action. For most alcoholics who are drinking or who are just getting over a spree, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. The, f- the matter of physical treatment should, of course, be referred to your own doctor. I d- at least agree with this part of it. This is a good, a, a very good suggestion. If an employee does come to you and they express that they have an issue with drinking, Going the HR route is probably the best bet, just legally, but also morally, you shouldn't be telling your employee, "Well, yeah, you're an alcoholic; you need to get help." But if you feel like they are in a position where uh, getting well down that route does require some kind of a physical, like a medical uh, aspect, you know, angle, then yeah, work with them on trying to figure out like, you know, time off and stuff like that. Like, do do what you can. I mean, I think that's a reasonable ask, uh, but. Again, I, I can't help but feel that you shouldn't be willing to do this for somebody uh, just like a few of your employees. If you're not willing to do this with all of your employees, then you shouldn't be doing this with any. I'm saying that if anybody in your team has a medical emergency that comes up and you're not willing to bend over backwards for them, then you shouldn't for the person who has you know alcoholism, just because maybe you understand that a little better. That's not a fair take. Uh, everybody should have the same access to resources, whether they're in recovery or not, or whether they're suffering from a medical emergency currently or not, like it should all be accessible by everybody. If that's the direction you're going to go as an employer, the matter of physical treatment should of course, and yes, refer them to a doctor. Don't tell them any fucking advice on quitting any of this stuff. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please don't do that. Uh, whatever the method, its object is to thoroughly clear mind and body of the effects of alcohol. Incompetent hands it seldom seldom takes long, nor is it very expensive. But I don't know where they're getting that. Sometimes it seldom takes long, nor is it very expensive. That's definitely changed. Recovery is not cheap, unfortunately. Your man will fare better if placed in such physical condition that he can think straight and no longer craves liquor. Now, removing this as, uh, from the employer-employee relationship, just in general, yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. You know, even if you don't think the person that you're helping is going to want to use AA as a method, like suggesting that they at least clear their mind to make that determination themselves is, is a good suggestion. If you propose such a procedure to him, it may be necessary to advance the cost of the treatment, but we believe it should be made plain that any expense will later be deducted from his pay. It is better for him to feel fully responsible. Uh, it, that should not be left to this book to decide. None of that should be left to this book to decide. Uh, if you're a reasonable employer and you can cover the costs of recovery for your employee, because you feel like that's worth it then do that. Uh, but again, that needs to be something that could be offered to anybody that works there. Not just because you feel like he's an earner or a harder worker than other people. Like human, human value isn't determined by the cogs we make. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this idea that, uh, Make them pay for it so that they can take responsibility. I mean, yeah, if you want to saddle them with that kind of debt, but that should be a decision that they make. If as an employer, it's a part of your company's like deal to cover that then fucking cover that. So weird. If your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, which I don't know why that would be true. He should understand that he must undergo a change of heart to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. We all had to place recovery above everything for without recovery would have lost home both home and business. No, again, as an employer, you shouldn't have to be, you should not be the one to explain this stuff to him. Can you have uh, every confidence in his ability to recover? While on the subject of confidence, can you adopt the attitude that so far as you are concerned, this will be a strictly personal matter, that his alcoholic derelictions, the treatment about to which he, about to be undertaken, will never be discussed without his consent? It might be well to... Have a long chat with him on his return. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, don't go sharing this with the rest of the office. That should go without saying, though. To return to the subject of matter of this book, it contains full suggestions by which the employee may solve his problem. To you, some of the ideas which it contains are novel. Perhaps you are not quite in sympathy with the approach we suggest. By no means do we offer it as the last word on the subject, but it's so far as we are concerned, it has worked with us. After all, are you not looking for results rather than methods? Whether your employee likes it or not, he will learn the grim truth about alcoholism. That won't hurt him a bit, even though he is—he does not go for this remedy. Uh, okay. We suggest you draw the book to the attention of the doctor who is to attend your patient during treatment. If the book is read the moment the patient is able, while acutely depressed, realization of his condition may come to him. i I guess. I mean... Weird idea that the only time you can present this book to somebody is if they're the right, you know, mix of depressed and physically ill. Not really a lot of confidence in the message here if that's the only time this book could be digested. We hope the doctor would tell the patient the truth about his condition, whatever that happens to be. And that should be, again, left to the doctor and any recovery representatives that might have You know, that might be in the workplace, not the employer. Your boss should not be fucking talking to you about this stuff. And if it happens, tell them it makes you feel uncomfortable and that this isn't something you want to talk about. It's such a weird concept that this book is presenting right now, and it's making me uncomfortable. I think that's why I keep harping on it. When the man is presented with this volume, it is best that no one tell him he must abide by its suggestions. The man must decide for himself. And while I do fully embrace that concept, it seems like, again, the book is kind of flip-flopping. In this chapter, on whether or not that's the truth, the the fact that it's telling this to a person who it has told should absolutely be making the assumption that their employee is an alcoholic <laughs> needs to hear the messages of this book. That it it isn't up to you if they're an alcoholic. It's weird. It's weird to me. It's just. It's like. It's like they're not really sure who this is actually for. This chapter. Um, anyways, there's six pages left. I was going to just try to power through them, but I realized that this episode is kind of going a little long with, with my rambly bits at the beginning. Um, I am feeling better, so I have a feeling I'll be able to record this hopefully tomorrow, maybe. I don't know. But it'll be on time. We'll, you know, The, the next chapter will be on time, and uh, I'll try to preface it with a little bit better news, hopefully. Um, physically, I'm feeling better. I'm getting back into the swing of going to uh, meetings again. You know, things are improving in a lot of ways. So far, I I had the opportunity to do a a public share of my story, speaker meeting style. Um, I'll have some links in my, you know, my Facebooks and stuff. Again, you can find me on An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA on Facebook. There's two different, there's my page that just is sort of like a business page. And then there's a group and I'm hoping that I can get that group to organically grow and start sharing and. And make it kind of a communication hub for folks to to talk about my episodes or talk about other podcasts or talk about whatever that's in the recovery space. You can find me on Twitter at in. You can also find me on Instagram at atheist underscore in underscore AA. Uh, I don't typically post too much on there outside of my episodes. Um, I'm not great with this social media stuff. I'm going to be honest. Um... I'm trying to get better just because I know that it will help get my my content out there. Uh, But it just doesn't feel organic to me. You know, I I try to interact with folks um, here and there, but I feel like it just ends up spreading me a little thin. So if you guys can share this stuff, guys and girls, folks can share this stuff with people that you think might benefit from it. That is the kind of growth I'm hoping to get. Um, I might run some ads in the future, you know, little $10 ads like I did at the beginning of this. But the... Main idea is hopefully that people just get this in the hands of the people that need it, just like any other kind of, you know, recovery content. I know some people do benefit from like a social media presence, and maybe that'll be something I, I improve later in life, but it's just not something I'm very consistently good at and doesn't feel natural to me. So, you know, growing pains there. Um, you can also email me at uh, oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. I'm pretty good at replying to that, at least fairly often. But yeah, I I really hope that you guys got something out of this episode. I feel like this is probably the hardest I've been on the AA Big Book uh, so far, which is interesting since there's like no mention of God. But just some of the stuff that's in here seems irresponsible, I guess. And my biggest takeaway in regards to that is, you know, this program isn't perfect it's not requiring people to be perfect and it is itself imperfect and to treat it as such is to do the program a disservice so i explore and examine the stuff that is i feel wrong with it or at least misrepresented or worded poorly uh coming from that angle that's you know the, the easiest way to explain it I, anyways I, I appreciate everybody listening thank you for keeping me sober one more day until next time